So I'm in the middle of a coaching session and my client is talking about succession planning. I say, is there an obvious choice to succeed you? No. Are there rock stars in your organization? Definitely, but none that are ready, so there would need to be an outside search. I allow for a good long pause. My client heard the message in that pause. And then we started to get to the real business of our session. We made a list of the rock stars, listing the strengths and areas of development for each. We spent extra time looking at the folks of color and considered how a plan could be developed to address different areas of growth. Rock stars. The organization had attracted rock stars. Developing talent. The organization had work to do. And it's an easy path from investing in your rock stars to retaining them. Attracting, developing, retaining. Not the nonprofit sector's strongest suit. Hardly. In fact, I think it's a huge liability for our sector. Attracting. We don't take the time. We don't invest in talent recruitment. Developing talent? No time. No budget. Sadly, not seen as a priority. All of you listening know how much our world counts on your organizations. Leadership development and succession planning will separate the good nonprofits from the great ones. But I'm not naive. The challenge is to attract and grow talent, to ensure their retention and move them up the leadership pipeline. Not insignificant. Time and money constraints are real and legit. So too is the reality of the need to build organizations to last. Tackling this issue is my guest's sweet spot. She's going to have insights and some actionable advice. And maybe it's not as hard as you think. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Gally Cooks is the founding president and chief executive officer of Leading Edge, an organization formed to influence, inspire, and enable dramatic change in attracting, developing, and retaining top talent for Jewish organizations. To Leading Edge, Gally brings extensive professional experience in the nonprofit, public, and private sectors. Her career began in D.C., where she was a speechwriter at the Embassy of Israel and worked as a legislative assistant at APAC. She was founding director of the PJ Library at the Grinspoon Foundation and also served as the executive director of the Rita J. and Stanley H. Kaplan Family Foundation, overseeing the distribution of millions of philanthropic dollars. In the private sector, Galley was VP of operations at an ed tech company. Galley has served on the boards of Exponent Philanthropy, Keshet, and the New York City Venture Philanthropy Fund. She holds a BA from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and an MBA from NYU's Stern School of Business. Gally, it's great to have you, and thank you so much for all the work you do. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm a huge fan of your leadership in this field, Joan. Well, thank you. Um, uh, the feeling is mutual. So, Gally, clearly you get the challenge in this sector. 
And this is what your organization is about. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about Leading Edge and its origin story? And I'm also curious about the thinking about your organization being focused specifically on Jewish organizations. Sure. Uh, Let me take this in two parts. The first is our Genesis origin story. Uh, So it was a dark and stormy night. No, just kidding. It was uh, 2013. uh, toward the end of 2013, when uh, an informal group of CEOs of foundations and major uh, Jewish organizations had been meeting informally for some time. And um, the purpose of these meetings was to talk about some of the major issues and major challenges facing the community and thinking about a collaborative approach or shared learnings, those types of uh, almost like informal networking kind of conversations. And at that time and sort of building up to that time, the conversation was all about the leadership pipeline. Right. There were a lot of folks in those rooms, a lot of leaders who admitted I'm not sure who's taking over for me when I retire in, you know, fill in the blank years. And Joan, you've talked about this. Yeah. And so in 2013, just like in the general nonprofit, and I'm say, dare I say, general society, yep. the Jewish nonprofit sector was talking about a turnover in the C-suite of, you know, 75% to 90% by some estimates and all fueled by generational, you know, the demographics. Yep. And, and so this group of, of really investors in the Jewish ecosystem understood that there was essentially an exposure to our organizations because we know that the, the marker of a great organization starts with a leader. Yep. And if that, you know, that transition was going to be precarious. So they wanted to do something about it. And what year was this again? This was 2013. 2013. Okay. Yeah, 2013. So, you know, in many ways, uh, we were... We were sort of at riding the the wave, especially post the Great Recession, which you know had a little bit of a lagging uh, effect for this you know major churn in the C suite, this generational transition, but very much in that sweet spot. And so there are about fifteen of these donors and and major uh, CEOs of major Jewish organizations that approached the Bridge Band Group. And they said, can you please get us, help us get a sense of like, what's at the heart of this? Why right. do we have a leadership pipeline problem? And the idea there was like, listen, our organization solved incredible problems. We know that we do great work. You know, there is a, an ability to attract. And, and like you said, at the top of the show, you know, there's, an, there's something missing here about the attracting, developing, retaining, really enabling people to maximize their potential. And so Bridgeband, after about 180 interviews with stakeholders and a landscape analysis and comparing us to them and all those different things, said, listen, there are two reasons. This was a 2014 now. There are two reasons, basically, why there is this this issue. One is that the Jewish nonprofits aren't aren't sufficiently developing and advancing the leaders they already have. So the idea there is there are actually we estimate about 100,000 people working across 9,500 Jewish organizations. Some of them are saying, you know, like they're raising their hand and they're saying, pick me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'd love to lead an organization, but they're not ready. You know, they're not ready. So they're willing and they're like, they're able. So that was the first, it was like, listen, you're, you're actually not growing your talent. Like you have homegrown talent. The second had to do, you know, I kind of like to call it sort of our, our image as, as a sector. And that was that many Jewish organizations don't have the value proposition to attract and retain the leaders they need. So the idea, yep, the idea there. So value proposition. So value proposition. meaning uh, in layman's terms, 
So I'm a really, I'm really invested in being a leader of a Jewish organization, but I'm not sure I want to be a leader of that Jewish organization because I'm not sure that there's a clarity of identity or a real understanding of what success and impact looks like. That, absolutely. There was also, there were a lot of conversations with folks who have choice. Why would I choose to go work let's say, at a Jewish day school when there's Teach for America out there. Or oh, I see. Network. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And some of that is much more subtle, like you said, which is, what am I seeing? I'm seeing role models who are maybe risk averse. I'm seeing highly bureaucratic organizations. A lot of the millennials at the time, remember, this was like, you know, seven, eight years ago now, they were saying, look, I want to solve problems. What I'm seeing is Jewish organizations really being on the defensive. Why aren't we playing offense? Mm. There was a lot of, lot of those types of interviews. And, and it was basically like, look, I've got a choice. I mean, it really, when I read this report, and that's really what prompted me to be like, yes, can we solve this? This is solvable. <laughs> like, we could do it. It was it was very evocative to me of when we were starting the PJ Library, which is like an early childhood literacy program that is basically Jewish literacy. Okay. I remember in the beginning, I was like, y'all, the kid is going to choose the book that looks awesome. Totally. Jewish children's books didn't look awesome at the time. And that was, it was like, you know, you have a choice point. Of course, they're going to go to like the Disney, the DK, whatever, and not necessarily the the other one, right? And that was sort of it. It was like, listen, like it's, we're, if you want to make a dent in society, you want to have like a purpose-filled career, you actually have a lot of different tributaries you can take. Yeah. And that, that's about the value proposition. It's like, how, how are we attracting the best and the brightest? Like they could go to google.org. They could go to, you know, charter school X. They could go to start their own thing. All that, yeah. Well, I think there's also, I mean, it's so interesting too, Golly, because having run an LGBT organization that has lots of organizations, right? Mm -hmm. There, are, I, I think there are some really interesting analogies. And there are also, I would assume, even within the sector, there is choice, right? So do you want to work at <clears throat> uh, the local community center or yes. is there now, because I can work virtually, an opportunity for me to work at the Human Rights Campaign or the Trevor Project or, right? And so I have this choice to make both in my own sector and outside of my own sector. And I, uh, the other thing I just want to say about developing leaders is um, I was, someone sought me out when I was at GLAAD. Not not to poach me, but a, a search firm, and they were looking for leads for a, a position at a, leading another organization. And the person said to me, um, "I I'm I'm just kind of can I just tell you the truth? I'm kind of stunned." And how, I don't believe the phrasing was as crass as I'm about to use, but I can't believe how few fish there are in the pond. Uh, like I call somebody like you and you offer me a name or two or three names and they're the same three names. Totally. And, uh, and so, so I'm totally with you and I totally get that we're not developing leaders and this whole value proposition thing. There must mm -hmm. have been big aha moments and it said, uh, to you, I guess it said, uh, count me in. Where, when do I start? Yeah, totally. I remember reading the the report and I, I was kind of like, duh. 
Duh. Duh. You know, it was like, okay, but incredibly clarifying to be like, all right, we're actually acknowledging the fact that we're, I mean, what does it mean that we're not developing our, our talent? It means that some of our talent is totally being neglected, is, is we know that management is, is a really huge Achilles heel. It's, it's the core reason why we're not an ecosystem of great places to work. And I would say that for the nonprofit sector at large, that's Completely. not unique to the Jewish nonprofit, right? And that, that was, it was like, oh my God, we're like, we're like overlooking these gems. And let's not forget that the majority of our waking hours are spent at work as adults. Can we just make it 5% better? You know, the, to me, it was like, we could do this. If not, make it amazing, you know? Yeah. So that was like the birth and really to the credit of our founding uh, parents, I like to call them. I mean, it, it was a donor collaborative. I yep. mean, they really, they looked across the sector and they were like, all right, well, we can actually structurally do this. We were originally called the Jewish Leadership Pipelines Alliance. Um, I remember looking at that and I was like, so we're fracking talent. Great. So, okay. We're changing the name. Um, and it was, it was so clear. It was like, I mean, look, the, the bridge span work was so sharp that they really led us to three key lever points. They were like, listen, there's churn in the, in the C-suite. Everybody wants to work in a great place to work. The partnership between boards and volunteer leaders and professionals needs to be a lot healthier. Those are your three lever points. Get working and then see if there's like an actual demand for the need that we just identified. So, so I I think I I think I live in the third sector of the yeah, you, do. you have three yeah. you, she uh, Golly had three fingers up and when she got to that board uh, the volunteer professional staff thing I thought okay that's my finger okay so um uh so what does it mean so uh, really quickly because I want to <clears throat> get into some of the so the philosophical stuff but get, what does it mean you do every day Golly what do you guys yeah. do every day what do we do every day? Um, it's incredibly meaningful work because what we do is we learn about the work experience of, at this point, tens of thousands of employees. So what they actually experience every day coming to work in and out, you know, punching in and out. We work with funders and board members and understand their experience. And kind of like a couples therapist, you get to see like, oh, where is the disconnect? You know, like what's happening here? Like everybody, what I love about our sector is that everybody means well, Yes, but we don't get, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, I really, really mean to dance the tango. That doesn't necessarily, I know, mean that I know how, unless I actually like learn. Yeah. And that's something that you talk about so much in terms of like, you know, the board doesn't necessarily know what they're getting into and therefore they're stepping all over the toast, right? All that yep. stuff. Yep. So we see it. I mean, we see it on a macro level. We see it. We advise a lot of different leaders, either formally or informally um, through especially COVID in the last year, which is really just a people centered crisis yep. in so many different ways. And, and then we, we launch different interventions to try to help organize and, and really hold this space. So the first is let's look at data. And, and by that, I mean, the first six months that I was in this role, I had way too much coffee with people <laughs> like way too much coffee and ask them and ask them a bunch of questions. I had a protocol of different questions that I asked them about their work experience. What I got from that is that everyone's had a horrible boss that has scarred them. And that absolutely overtook the conversation. That was my first key takeaway, by the way. Wow. Yep. That was the first one. The second was that the vast majority of people are scared of Excel. Excel, like the spreadsheet. Excel. 
the spreadsheets. Yes. They're like, I don't know how to read a budget. I'm not sure this. I'm not sure that. Okay. That was you're, the second You're going to tell me later why that's so important, why that came as number two. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep on with yep. yep. And the third had to do with closing a gift, actually right. asking for money. How you yeah. do that? How you tell a story? I was never in the room. My executive director always took the ask. All those different things, and I was like, "Wow, that's amazing and super unhelpful." Like that doesn't help me organize anything except for it felt like every time I was having a conversation with someone, it was a focus group of one. Yeah. So then it was like, "All right, let's pan out because there is organization science around this. There is management science. We know that people's motivations and their actions don't necessarily manifest in ways that are rational and all those things, and so." One of the things, the first things that we did around one of the goals is, can we create an ecosystem of great places to work? Meaning, can we enable policies, practices, procedures that will enable people to thrive at work? And there's a very easy way to know if something, if some an organization is a great place to work or not. Ask the people. Right. That's it. And it's inherently subjective, but it's incredibly accurate. Yep. And so last, last week, actually, we launched, uh, um, so in terms of programs, there's like a basket of programs. So one is around um, serving employees about the workplace experience. Mm -hmm. The second is around supporting new CEOs. So because there's so many new CEOs, giving them a leadership development experience, cohort-based coaching, that kind of stuff. And then the third has to do with really that board aspect of things and where the partnership falls down, where it thrives, why. Also, who's sitting around the board table? Why are they there? How they may be different in the Jewish community as opposed do to- Do they like know why they're there? How about that do one? Much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, that sort of a. So um, just the mechanics of how you work, and then let's dig into some of these things. Mm-hmm. Is so I'm a, let's say I run a Jewish organization. Do I seek you out and ask for your technical support? Um, do you fund my professional development efforts? Like what does, what does the relationship look like if I'm running xyz.org in the Jewish, in the Jewish community? Yeah. So it can be anything from one-on-one consultations with CEOs to help them work through a particular problem to being part of a cohort-based experience for either the CEO or different different professionals in the pipeline or boards. Um, Or it could be a whole organization approach to an organization that says the leader has recognized, I want to become a better place to work. I know that's a great way to attract and retain talent. And so that's where surveys, post-survey interventions and some resources, that's where we, we work with them. And do I um, do I pay Leading Edge or does Leading Edge fund me? There, I'm, I'm, I, there's a reason I'm asking. Yeah. So uh, so if you would answer that, and then I'll tell you why I'm asking. Yeah, no, you don't pay Leading Edge. The only place where we had great debates on whether we should have like a program fee yep. is if it's if it's more of like a cohort based experience. Yep. And there we said, you know what, people need some skin in the game. But apart from that, no, the surveys, the resources, the interventions, the time with our organizational development consultants, that was the beauty of these founding funders basically saying, we are creating, I mean, I don't really talk about leading edge this way so much, but it's basically like a 21st century, like public utility in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, And so 
You are a nonprofit organization funded by yeah. these foundations, and their sole interest is strengthening sort of the leadership of the Jewish movement, basically. Yeah. Yes, Got exactly. It. And to your question on do we fund professional development? No, we don't do yeah. that. Okay. Uh, we we are trying to channel additional resources to invest in talent. Makes sense. That is one thing. So we do work with funders. I mean, almost like, you know, little advisors or whatever to uh-huh. to to make sure that that's not counted as overhead. You know, it's not pejorative. It's that kind of thing. Right. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. So now I'll ask you, uh, so I haven't asked you any of any of the questions that were on my list yet. <laughs> um, um, are there analogous organizations in different movements and do you have relationships with them and learn from them? Because I, I think it's a, it's a fabulous model. I just, I, I don't know enough about other movements to know whether there are different you know, if there's a leading edge for the black community or the LGBT movement. So I'm just mm-hmm. actually curious about your, your observation about that. Yeah, it's a great question. We've been looking for analogs to learn from and work with and, and all that. I can say we do work with some outside of the Jewish community that are doing aspects of our work. So for example, Fund the People, which was started by Rusty Stahl, um, and is really trying to drive additional resources to investing in talent and thinking about the, the workforce of the Jewish, of the, of the nonprofit sector. Um, so we're, we're definitely in touch with Rusty. Um, there's, there's also. No, there's I was, I was, I was actually going to say, so, so you're kind of on the leading edge of this then I would think. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think so. Yeah. You know, and different, like, look, some, some foundations, yeah. whether it's Omidyar, you know, Robin Hood Foundation, Packer, they kind of run these almost like HR talent investment kind of portfolios within the portfolio. Yeah. Um, we've spoken with different venture, fa- venture capital funds and, and thinking about what do they do for their portfolio uh, of investees. Right. So it's sort of akin to that. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. So, in an ideal world, you would focus on building the workplace culture inside an organization so that you can, in fact, start attracting five-star folks. But clearly, we all know that we're never in a place when you could do it in like an order, right? <laughs> let's yep. fix our culture and then let's yep. bring in rock stars. So let's start where business guru Jim Collins starts, which is getting the right people on the bus. Um we have some superb, superb talent in the sector, but not enough. So what's thwarting our ability to attract great talent in our nonprofit leaders? Let's go back to the Bridgespan report. Right. They really identified that. In some cases, it's a leadership that is bureaucratic, that's risk averse, that's sort of small minded, that doesn't look at different generations, different perspectives, the whole swath of talent as an asset, even though it's uncomfortable. 
So more of like an approach of team of rivals. Mm-hmm. That's definitely one of the, not one, those are the different reasons that we've seen time and again of talent that has choice that wouldn't want to work at an organization where they don't have the agency to change it. Right. That's the big, that's the big differentiator. And that's a big, that's a bigger issue today than it was 10 years ago because um, not just millennials, but folks who are Gen Z, they don't, particularly the Gen Z folks. And I uh, did a podcast with a woman named Charlotte Alter, a Time Magazine reporter who wrote a book called uh, The Ones We've Been Waiting For. And it is essentially all about, you know, it's profiles of about seven or eight really interesting people, some you know by name, some others you would not, Mm -hmm. um, and how they have grown up in a a society where institutions have failed them miserably, miserably. And so, A, they're not really drawn to go work in an institution, but when they are, they have a completely different set of expectations about the power of their voice. They actually, um, I mean, maybe you've seen this, but I think they often operate in ways that feel disrespectful to the institution Mm -hmm. and are then sort of tagged as, you know, the bad one, you know, the bad eggs in the bunch, the, 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 the troublemakers. I I guess I was sort of curious if you've seen this as well. Yeah, hundred percent. First of all, I love that episode that you did with Charlotte. Oh, thanks. It was was so, it was also super timely because we were just inundated with different managers being like, oh my God, they want to be in the corner office tomorrow. You know, like that type of, where's this entitlement coming from? Right. And yeah, the book was incredible really, really important understanding, especially now that we've got four generations working together in a workplace environment. Yeah. And Gen Z, you know, it took us a while to figure out, and I'm not sure if this is, you know, like Torah, if you will, like this is like, you know, law, but there is something about Gen Z. You know, when I was at the Kaplan Foundation, we did a lot of uh, education funding. And I remember reading Jeffrey Canada's book in the community days in the community school model and thinking about like, wow, schools are really raising kids, you know, like that type of. And then like thinking about like, oh, yeah, we'll bring a dentist and a social worker and a this to the school, you know, as the hub. And it took us a while to figure out like, well, or to ask the question, I should say, like, are workplaces raising adults? Fascinating. Is that kind of, it's kind of what it feels like, right? Like you can't get health insurance. You can't provide for your family without work. You can't get health insurance without work. You, I think at the last stat, it was like 35% of people meet their spouse at work. The vast majority of folks, at least who are engaged, have a best friend at work. Your identity as a human being is work, at least in American society. And we can talk about the unhealthiness there, right? And that Gen Z, I mean, you hit it. Like it's, there is such a different sort of biorhythm to their expectations and their assumptions and their hopes and dreams and all of that, that there is quite a learning curve all around in, in that experience. The, um, we, and we're not just talking about executive directors or CEOs too. I, mean, I think one of the things I hear all the time that I, I believe is is illustrative of the point we're making between the intersection of uh, talent and work culture 
uh, or just the work environment is the what I consider to be a grand myth that there just are no good development directors out there. I mean, come on. So first of all, you know, I've probably done a a numerous podcasts talking about development as a team sport, but, um, and I have a blog post called before you fire your development director. And essentially it's like, look, look, look in the mirror, boys and girls. Right. 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 But like, but that's, that's the intersection, right. Is I can find a rock star, but I, if I don't set them up to succeed. And so, so, so. How do I how do I navigate that? If I'm an executive, yeah. you know, if, uh, you know, how do I navigate that? Is that yeah. is that coaching? Is that you know, what do you find in or or what do you find in these work culture assessments that stand out as things that that can be different without them being onerous? And I don't and I say that putting my putting myself in the the allbirds of my uh, listeners. Uh, who all birds are my like new favorites. I don't think I've been out of my all birds in like 12 months. My God. Um, I keep seeing those ads in like Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. I fell for it. Um, (laughs) But you know, there's, they're out there saying, okay, I got to earn money. I I, got to navigate this board. I got to do all these things. And now you want me to change my work culture. What are you learning about work culture and how it can be changed? And are there things that are easier than other things? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So we have found that there are about six ingredients to a great place to work or a leading place to work, as we like to call it. Because Okay, you, you know what? I, I, what I, have a, um, I have to interrupt you because Please. <laughs> um, you know Dara Klarfeld, who I also uh-huh. have interviewed. Dara runs a search firm and she's really very gifted and actually an ordained rabbi. And um, I coached, uh, she and I had a coaching relationship for a period of time. And I said, you talk like a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) And I haven't met anyone until just now that I can say the exact same thing to golly, you talk like a PowerPoint presentation. And I mean that as a high compliment. So six things. Oh my God. My team, if if they ever listen to this, are going to be laughing their little tushies off because I literally keep telling them, I think in PowerPoint. So therefore, and it's really true. And I will say that it's been incredibly clarifying doing lit reviews and working with organizational development consultants and companies like Culture Amp that run different surveys that enable you to quiet some of the noise of people's experience at work, which is real. And then really getting at the heart of, well, what is actually going to make a better workplace? So the six ingredients are trusted leaders, trust, a common purpose, respected employees, clear salary and benefits, and diversity, equity, and inclusion baked in. Now, now what do we mean by that? When we look at the employee experience survey and we try to ask ourselves, is this a leading place to work? We do have some and we don't have others. And we actually run gap analyses to see, well, what do those who have aren't there for the other ones? Mm -hmm. And those are the different factors, starting with leaders, trusted leaders. And what is the lubricant of trust? Communication. Mm-hmm. Communications. Totally. Right? You, just, you just did a podcast, I think, with that incredible uh, program evaluation 
Oh, Shari, um, uh, Shari Smith. Yeah. Oh my God. That was amazing. And, and what did you all talk about? Over communicate, over communicate, right? Completely. It just, you, you just can't, that's, that's like the, the, like lifeblood of our business. It's information. And if there's a vacuum of information, that's when the rumors start and the festering goes and all of that. Trusted leaders remember that their employees is one of their stakeholders. Right. Just like you communicate with the board every two weeks and do your Shabbat Shalom message or whatever that is. Uh-huh. Just like you do an annual gala, just like you think about, you know, the community members who helped with this, that, or the other, we too often overlook the fact that your team, that's, you know, that's your engine. Well, I, 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 I'm not even sure we, I mean, I, I, because I focus so much on the part, the sort of the, this twin engine jet board staff thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't actually think nonprofit leaders um, prioritize communications at all. Right. Uh, right. right. They, they, they uh, you can, you can find a highly trusted leader who, who you ask them for their, you know, sort of two minute, spiel about their organization and 20 minutes later they're still talking so right so it's like (laughs) we have to send everyone to communication school it seems to me yeah yeah very much so and you've got a lot of inspiring messages again going external but not internal and so one of the ways in which you foster trust you give context to certain things here's what we're doing why we're doing it here's who's going to be part of it here's what we know here's what we don't know Here's by when we hope that that thing is going to be known. You know, just it's basic, right? It's it's not easy. I don't want to undermine. Like this is no. It takes a lot of time. It's actually very strategic. It requires a great deal of intention. But but the upside or the let's the the downside. Silence is a gap that gets filled, and it it very infrequently gets filled the way you want it filled. Oh, well said. So true. So true. Exactly. So trusted leaders that then foster a common purpose. I mean, especially during COVID, which organization didn't have to pivot either permanently or in some way, you know, periodically. Yep. How many of those employees, right? How many of those employees understood, okay, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We actually saw a lot of, when we, many of us dispersed, those who didn't have a building, you know, not a school or a Jewish community center or a, you know, house of worship, but those who could, you know, work from home. What we saw actually is that there was an uptick in communications between, right, between the team and um, and the leadership because there was, I, I couldn't see you in your cubicle and I'm not sure if you're working. And also, by the way, this is important because I'm now giving you, you know, new goals or, or whatever it is. So it's really, it's kind of that easy, but that hard. And, and really, look, we like to say that a leading place to work is one where you trust and entrust your people. The six items on your uh, audio <laughs> the PowerPoint, PowerPoint slide, the audio the PowerPoint. PowerPoint that you just gave us. <laughs> um, can you have the other five without trusted leadership? You can't, Joan. You really, really can't. Like there are pockets. So what we see is like certain teams yeah. do well, yeah. right? Because the manager, again, it's fostered by the manager. 
it's it's very difficult. And that's why it was so unbelievably exciting when Leading Edge first started doing its thing. It was like, wait a second, the best time to actually shift a culture is when you have that change in leadership. Yep. Right? That's the heat's turning up. The clay is going to be soft and you're going to be able to reshape it in ways that you never thought before. And that is a huge possible risk for an organization, but such unbelievable reward. And yeah, everything flows from the leader. I mean, it really, really does. And the senior leadership team. And then let's talk about the role of the board in that. Yes. And we are going to do that. And I I actually, I do a fair amount of work when I do CEO coaching. Um, I engage with the leadership team of the CEO and really really try to change the mindset of the entire cohort to a sort of lead with mentality, right? Uh, right. That's for the CEO nice. to be able nice. to say, I lead with you, right? I, I, I need, I cannot be an effective leader unless we lead together. And, um, one of my, uh, one of my friends, Nick Turner, who runs the Vera Institute, um, he talks about it as leading from the bridge, right? Mm. Is that so often your leadership team, they think they're in charge of communications and programs. And one of the things we're really talking a lot about with my clients these days is what does the first day back in the office look like after COVID? You know, when the, when the offices open back up, what does leader, how do you show up as a leader on that first day? Yeah. And if you just go to your office or you just bring your own team together, in my mind, you fail the leadership test, mm-hmm. right? So um, there's so 100%. many interesting things, so many interesting things to talk about. And we are talking about attracting, developing, and retaining mm-hmm. um, uh, rock stars with Golly Cooks, who is the founding president and CEO of Leading Edge, an organization formed specifically to influence, inspire, and enable dramatic change in attracting, developing, and retaining top talent for Jewish organizations. This is what she does, uh, and we are benefiting from her wisdom today. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about that board. Yeah. All right, so the board, all right, so largely uh, we, could, we could create a, a pretty good, accurate stereotype of the typical board that has to make that leadership decision. Mm-hmm. I always talk about the fact that strong boards often, ah, strong boards sometimes make bad hires and weak boards always make bad hires. Yeah. Uh, and as this, and, and there, um, as people are retiring, what we're also seeing, and I just was sort of curious about how you grapple with this in number three of your priorities, mm-hmm. um, is when you've got somebody who's been around a really long time, they pretty much call the, the it, it grows to a place where they call the shots. I call it the, the make way for ducklings board, right? <laughs> where the mama duck, you know, the board are all the little ducklings. They, they're like, hey, golly, whatever you need, just let me know. Just let me know. I'm here if you need me. Yeah. Which like that's that doesn't fly. So what you end up having is when you start that leadership transition, you have a duckling board instead of a, a team of ducks. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's this there's this inflection point now in all these organizations where people are retiring and their boards are weak. 
mm-hmm. and they don't really, they're not close enough to the action. And I'm not saying this is true for all of them. Please, I know there are so many wonderful, wonderful boards that are working for really sure. hard on getting it right. And by the way, they're hard to get right. It's really yeah. hard to get your board right. So if it doesn't yep. feel right, I, I want you to know it's normal. Um, it's normal, but but keep working on it. Um, so what's the what's the role the board plays in all of this? Yeah, well, you've talked about the fact that the board has one employee, the CEO. Now there are certain processes. Forget like the strategic, you know, generative, high-level stuff. There's certain basic hygiene functions that we see that too few boards do in general. Evaluate your CEO once a year, right? (laughs) Just do it. I have to tell you, the first time that we did the employee experience survey with about 5,000 employees, almost half of the organizations that took our survey, and this this was like our coalition of the willing. So they were like probably better than par, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Of course, of course. Right? They, the vast majority of those employees had never had an evaluation at all, at all, at all, at all. Forget like, you know, feedback loop that's constant. So our boards, we just don't have those muscles. And that's where, again, I think that that's good news because that is something that's fixable. It's not, not fraught, you know, especially, right. But there's a, there was, I was speaking with a, with a leadership coach who we, cause we've been looking at this problem and trying to figure out like there's. Why is there's this cognitive dissonance between the CEO leaving and then preparing for that? You know, like it's almost like, well, no, 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 Joe's always going to be there. Like there's there's certain certainties in life, right? Death, Texas, the CEO's going to leave. You know, like come on. Like that's- I, I I sat before a board at one point. Um, the guy who ran it had been there for forty three years, and I was brought in <laughs> to sort of help navigate this transition. And so we go into executive sessions so that I can really talk turkey with this board about what it really means. And one of the <laughs> one of the board members legitimately said to me, "So why is he leaving?" Oh and I, and thank God, thought balloons are not visible to the naked eye because what I wanted to say is, you know, after forty three years, he's seventy three years old. Oh my God. Exactly. Exactly. And they're usually beloved and pillars, you know, on the Mount Rushmore, they should appear on the Mount Rushmore of nonprofits, all that. At the same time, like this is where I think that that we've seen an opportunity with the horribleness of the last year, organizations have had to ask themselves, so what happened if Joe gets COVID? What what happens? That. And that is the beginning. Just just, you know, dig the well before you're thirsty kind of thing, you know, like that type of understanding and mentality. And so the first thing is like some of the basic hygiene. So we we did partner with um, um, an editor at the Harvard Business Review just to create almost like Cliff's Notes on CEO succession and search. What do I do as a board member in order to do it? Because a lot of the time what we heard and like literally heard this direct quote of like, listen, I had a checkbook, I had a post, and now I'm board chair. Yeah. Yeah, the right. joke the joke I use is is that most board chairs were in the restroom at the time of the vote. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. It's and so again, they mean well, they're 
not necessarily in a position to understand what is the best practice because you go into Google and you're like, CEO transition, 40 million things pop up. How are you going to discern what's what? So we were like, all right, let's cut that path for them. Here's, here's a manual. The thing is, their own, is that that doesn't necessarily change behavior. So then we also wanted to show like, where does that actually work? Like, are there bright spots of searches that did get it right? And to your point, it's not cookie cutter. It's a long and winding path. There's, it's oftentimes super fraught and political. Um, so, but we did a, a collection of about six of these case studies where we said, you know what, this is actually a constructive and honest process that one can take away something from and everything from, you know, how big should your search committee be to what are the ways in which you did structured interviews so that they actually, there was some rigor there and some equity baked in to a bunch of other stuff. So some of it is really just that, is introducing some of these, I, I don't want to belittle them by saying that they're basic hygiene, but they really are like some of these, you know, certain, certain things. And then connecting folks with one another, like there are some, you know, board chairs who are just magic, people who've served on search committees and gotten it right. And so can folks really counsel themselves and each other in, in sort of like a peer network um, kind of way. But those are, those are some of the things that we do, which I know is, you know, not new to how you approach all of this. I also know that you happen to have actually a rock star board chair. Um, I do. I do. And, 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 and in <laughs> fact, actually, um, uh, my pond is actually bigger than it sounds. Sometimes I think it sounds small, but anyway, um, she was also a guest on a podcast uh, because I thought it was important for people to understand what a great board chair mm-hmm. sounds like, uh, how she operates, and uh, mm-hmm. um, so uh, y- you have an excellent co-pilot in, D- in Daryl Messinger for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, she's she's our vice chair, so she's oh she's the vice uh, chair. Okay, but no, it's listen. We have a fifteen-person board member or board, and it's uh, it's true. It's like you know, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches as as we're trying to you know, in many ways, learn and live by what we're trying to uh, to preach. <laughs> yeah, I want to so. talk a, a couple of quicker questions, assuming they can, that that I can be quiet. Um, so you, uh, so uh, sort of this issue of pay equity and is a, is a key component and something we hear uh, quite a lot. Um, uh, and you and you argue that while I, I mean I, I would argue that while folks there needs to be pay equity, but money is not the defining factor, right? I think about Daniel Pink, and, uh, and if you've not seen any of Daniel Pink's TED talks, they're worth a they're worth a look because he really talks about um, when you level the playing field, uh, when there's equity, uh, it's about master it's it's about autonomy mastery and purpose there are three things golly my own little powerpoint actually Daniel's. beautiful yeah thank you very very much and <laughs> um but so many of those three things autonomy mastery and purpose tie into your six things right so oh, um right. uh yeah. but 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 we aren't we aren't in a world where there's pay equity 
Mm -mm. No, we're not. And it's it's really interesting. It's one of the areas that from the beginning of Leading Edge, we've gotten a lot of pressure to do like a definitive comp study. salary survey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a salary survey. We need comps. We need this. And, you know, it was really, we work with very, very smart people. And they were like, listen, it's not the amount of money. It's the way in which it is set. It's a total black box to the majority of employees. They don't know how their compensation is set, how they may get promotions and how they may get raises. What is the philosophy behind the whole thing anyway? And that gets really played out and we see that in the data, meaning the overwhelming majority of employees don't know how compensation is set. They have not had at least an annual review where we can say, Joan, you did great. And therefore, I'm going to, you know, give you 3% more or whatever that is. Right. And here are the goals that you and I have defined for what success looks like for the next 12 months. You got it. Exactly. Exactly. So we actually, instead of doing a salary survey, which was like, y'all, it's going to be like what GuideStar puts out, which is incredible, but it's also 4,000 pages because we are a microcosm of the entire nonprofit sector. So we have a bunch of different types of organizations. They don't necessarily align. There are different accreditations and experience levels and geographic concerns. I mean, it's organizing that would be our full-time effort. And not sure if, you know, the squeeze is worth the juice there. Right. But if a manager was to think about, listen, this is what I hired for. Here's my philosophy as it relates to comp in general. Here are the three benchmarking salary surveys, which there are, yep. that I'm going to, and we're going to be at 75% to your point. Here are the goals. We're going to meet again in six months and nine months and whatever it is. We see that once you take away the charge of the not knowing, again, information, it's all communication. Yes, communicating about it. It has a huge, a huge impact. But you have to, you have to be the kind of leader who's also a good manager who knows that they have to actually do that stuff. A hundred percent. And you just hit the reason why we're not great places to work. It is because of the quality of our management. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Um, Someone asked me the other day, I don't even remember how it came up. And I was talking about the fact that I had no fundraising experience when I was hired at GLAAD and Hmm. that the other finalists did. And the organization was in a financial hole of substantive magnitude, way more Hmm. than the board even knew. And and that the other candidate had boots on the ground in the LGBT movement and knew a lot of people um, who could be asked for money. Hmm. And um, so the staff really wanted to hire the other person and the board really wanted to hire me. And they wanted to hire me. Be- <laughs> uh, let's see how many fingers it will take. Uh uh, they wanted somebody who actually understood the media business because that was the institution we were actually trying to affect change in. They wanted somebody who was an who was known to be an excellent manager who could actually because the organization had gone through a tumultuous period, they wanted somebody who could manage it well. Um, and they wanted someone who could communicate well because we were in, if you're in the media business and you're not a good communicator, you kind of lose a lot of credibility. Sure. And that I hit those three things in a way the other ones didn't, the other finalists didn't. Um, and by the way, those three things also helped helped me to be a very good relationship builder and fundraiser. So it's of really, course. you know, so it's very interesting to think about the role that being a good manager plays and how often 
honestly, how often I spend time with clients um, who are asking me questions that are management related rather than mm-hmm. leadership related. Mm-hmm. And that, not that I shouldn't be spending time there, but that it's very, in the, so there are some just sort of good, solid, what do you call it? Hygiene, basics, <laughs> the yeah. basics, which yeah. a lot of folks don't know. And yeah. the smaller the organization of which they're, right? So you, we all know, you know, two thirds of the organization's, of the 1.5 million have bu- budgets under a million bucks and two thirds yeah. of them under half a million bucks. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of management skill there. I mean, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of management, excuse me, there might be a lot of in- inherent management capabilities, but there's not a lot of management experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly what we see. We see a lot of, you know, in the beginning we called it like, huh, people want to have fun, but they're forgetting the fundamentals. Right. You can't have fun without the fundamentals as a coach of mine once said, you know, yep. like you just can't. And that, that is something that the, the manager role of having empathy, of holding people accountable of, I mean, it's really just being a good educator if you really think about it, right? Yeah. Like that's being a manager and, and yet it requires time and purpose and training. You yeah. can't just, you know, like, yeah. So golly, let's, let's talk about what new leaders need when they arrive and from whom and what requests they should be making to be set up to succeed? Even the best of pros still have coaching. So that's the first thing that we see. They need a support network in many ways. So that's where bringing together cohorts of leaders to learn with and from one another is particularly powerful. And the third is leaders need honest feedback from their teams and their boards. And that feedback mechanism and that ability to touch base with the folks who are your teams in bringing your your vision to life is is really critical. So I'm gonna t- I, I for some reason the first one cut out on me. So I just want okay. you to do <clears throat> okay. I do want you to do one your one two two. So Scott, I've just asked the question, and what do, requests do they need? Can you just try me one more time? So what requests do they need? Time protection, a lay of the land of any landmines that might happen and support for a certain amount of time as think of it like the runway of an airplane going off. They need a little bit of time to take off. And that means the board can support, different stakeholders can support, and they should be asking for that. Do you think a transition committee should be made up just of board members or like, because what you can't, as a new CEO, you can't see around the corners the same way totally. that that you can when you're in for there for three years. Like, what's around the corner? I don't know that could actually detonate me. <laughs> yes, right? absolutely. So, uh, do the board is the board a board transition committee? Uh, do they have what what I need as a new CEO? Sometimes, sometimes it could be made up of somebody who was a previous board member. So maybe there's a little bit of institutional history that's helpful. Sometimes it can also be a a senior professional who never wanted to be a CEO and and sort of has the back. Sometimes it's the predecessor. I mean, that's a fantastic role for predecessor, kind of senior advisor. We've seen that very much so. Sometimes it's a major donor who really wants to have the back of whoever the new person is. I think, though, being able to almost put together this kitchen cabinet in a way, yep. if it's not, um, that that's really uh, definitive uh, and a keys to success. Yep. Great. So um, 
some actionable advice, perhaps, Golly. Um, sure. The key uh, uh, to developing your own team, how very, very few organizations have an obvious in-house successor. Um, yeah. Give me some, give, give our listeners some advice. How do I just, how do I even get off the block on this? Yeah. So first of all is scenario planning. Your CEO, God forbid, gets COVID, goes on a vacation, doesn't want to come back. Whatever that scenario is, who's got next? And you said it, Joan, a lot of organizations don't have a deep bench because there are, you know, 10 or few full-time employees. So thinking about that, the different scenarios, and it could be breaking up the portfolio of the CEO. Maybe there is a COO that's really, you know, more back of the house and wants to stay there. But maybe there is a number two or number three that's totally passed over. And that is horrible. I think that's criminal, honestly, because we know that internal candidates outperform external ones almost every time. Wow. It really, and this is, this is out of, you know, this is research that is beyond our sector and, and has been proven in the corporate sector as well. So I think it's really like the board actually having a conversation and really thinking through what's the emergency succession plan. Scenario plan is number one. Two is practice. Get Mm -hmm. some reps in there. What better way than a sabbatical, a parental leave? You know, the CEO leaves for a certain amount of time. It's a fantastic way to think of, oh, we needed to bring in an interim there. Oh, you know, maybe we needed to bring somebody to do the development portfolio and help out here. So there's a consultant. There's a way in which the system reorganizes around the need of the work to get done. And you're only going to be able to do that once you actually have like a dress rehearsal in a way. And that that's, those are the kinds of things that we, that we really work with organizations and encourage them to think about, well, like what happens if, if this person's out and then go even deeper in the bench. Now that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I will say is you're right that from a professional development perspective, I mean, going back to that bridge band report, Mm -hmm. we are just not investing in the people that have, are really literally raising their hand and saying like, I really want to do this. Like pick me, you know? And that's where, you know, we look at the nonprofit sector. We know that per person, we invest about $20 per person in professional development, whereas in the corporate sector, it's about $120 per person. And this is, this is where it's the, that Excel comment. Yeah. I mean, I kind of said it in like, you know, like whatever you can do an Excel deep dive, you know, masterclass or whatever for $50 probably with some guy on, you know, YouTube, mm-hmm. even for free, mm-hmm. but it's about time and, and valuing that skill honing. And that's what we don't see as a, as a real value. It's kind of like, oh, you're supposed to just be able to pick this up on your own, your own time, which we know is, is already um, strapped. So I think being able to think about the ways in which you encourage people to professionally develop and and have policies to support that. That's the other thing. Like if I'm taking a, a like a like a you know full day training again on Excel, I shouldn't have to take a PTO day for that. Right. Yeah. Right? Like that's where it's like, oh my God, just align some of that. And that's an easy thing. And not on purpose. Again, Joe, not on purpose. It was just like, oh, we set the policy in this way, and then you know, inertia. Um, I uh I also think um, this is again what what does it mean to be a good manager? So I'm I'm coaching with someone, and then we'll have to wrap up. But I'm coaching. I was coaching with someone who said, "When I leave, uh, there's just no question 
this job should really, for based on the mission, it's not a box checking thing at all. But based on the mission that clients served, like it just feels to me that that when I leave, a person of color would be appropriate. It would it would be a priority to think about a person of color in the in the role. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, so let's talk about the people on your bench in your organization right now today. If you left tomorrow, could any, you know, we looked at the diversity of her group, which was very strong. None of them could do my job. Okay. Mm-hmm. What would it take? What would have to happen in order for one of them to be ready? Because there were clear rock stars amongst this group. And we identified a handful of people and this is where you start to stretch the muscles of these people, of the, you know, of these rock stars by asking them to take on special projects, to be on task forces, to exercise their leadership muscles. They're the ones that you take on an ask with you because you want them to see how it goes. You want them to add value, add their story about the work to the conversation. But if you're not doing that, Right. Then what's going to happen is you're going to say, well, you know, I have a very diverse group, but none of them are actually you. We wouldn't hire any of them because they don't have the X, the Y or the Z. Well, whose job is it to make sure they have the X, Y and Z? And I would argue it's your job. So um, that that's called professional development planning, but it doesn't have to be onerous. It can just be, okay. where are my rock stars and what are their gap skills? hundred percent. Right. What are their gap skills and how do I how can I help fill them? A hundred percent. But then that's the kind of work you do every day with your clients. Exactly. A hundred percent. It's I'm, I'm nodding so much. I like I thought that, actually, I thought you were in, I thought perhaps I had talked too long and you had nodded off. No, no. Um, so um, I have really loved this conversation and I know that my audience has loved this conversation. And even if it feels onerous, this whole leadership development, I'm not a good manager. I'm not this. The, the point isn't that you have to do all of these things right now today or that you have to feel bad that you're not doing them. The point of my podcast is to put them in front of you, right? To put it in your head, to start it for it to be a lens for you to use as you're thinking about the people on your team. And if you got caught back at the very beginning on the lack of Excel spreadsheet skills, you missed the point of this podcast. I just want to say that, okay? Um, I happened to actually, from the private sector, I became excellent at Excel. But that's not why I'm a good leader or a good manager. It just happens to be one of the tools I have in my toolbox. So um, with that said, uh, golly cooks, I um, I wish that every sector did have a leading edge. But it's certainly, um, as, a, uh, as a nonprofit consultant, as a coach, uh, as a Jew by choice, I just like to say that I am so very, very grateful to you uh, and uh, to your founders that the Jewish sector does, in fact, have a leading edge and a trusted leader at the helm. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's very kind, Joan. And thank you for doing what you're doing. You're making it easier for us. I love what I do. And on that note, I'll let you all go back to work. Um, Thanks for the work that you do. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, 
Thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.